Well, please turn in your Bibles first to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. This is the last chapter in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I'd like to introduce our new sermon series. We are beginning a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And the first couple chapters of Luke are what's called the infancy narratives, which describe for us the prophecy and birth of both John the Baptist as well as Jesus. And Lord willing, we will conclude this section, which uh, concludes with the birth of Christ, the Sunday before Christmas. So hopefully things work out so that that can happen. Well, as you can see, we, we have two readings this evening. So we are beginning here in Malachi chapter 4. Our sermon text will primarily be in Luke chapter 1. But Luke, chapter, Luke in, in chapter 1, alludes to and references Malachi chapter 4. So I think it's fitting for us to begin here in this last chapter of the Old Testament. So please turn your attention now to the reading of God's word. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming... The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will, neither, it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Well, the Son of Righteousness here is, is Christ, this prophecy of the Messiah to come. But notice before this time, which is described as a great and awesome day of the Lord, there will be the coming of this prophet, the prophet who mirrors in a lot of ways Elijah of old. And in Luke chapter 1, which I now invite you to turn to, Luke picks up this prophecy and applies it to John the Baptist, both the prophecy and birth of John the Baptist. So Luke chapter 1, we'll be considering verses 1 through 25 this evening. So Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Hear now the word of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, have you ever been at a place in your Christian life where you've wondered, where is God? Does he see what's going on in my life? Does he even hear my prayers? Times where God just seems completely removed and absent from your own Christian experience. Indeed, maybe you are in such a place this evening. Well, during the time period that Luke chapter 1 is narrating, the people of Israel were in a similar place. They were waiting for God to do what he promised. Particularly here in Malachi chapter 4, which we read. To send this prophet in the likeness of Elijah, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah, whom the whole Old Testament saints were looking forward to with great anticipation. Yet there had been 400 years of silence from Malachi to roughly 4 BC that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are living, or the time in which they're living. 400 years of silence, silence from God. But I would imagine some of these Israelites thinking similar thoughts that we may have thought at times in the past. What is God up to? Has he abandoned us? Has he just forgotten his promises? 
to us? Well, in this passage, we see God, our God, the God of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see our God as a God who fulfills his promises and cares for his people. In fact, one of the reasons why it's beneficial for us during this time of year to reflect upon the coming of Christ, which has traditionally been referred to as, as Advent, is because it reminds us that God hasn't forgotten his people. He didn't forget his people in the first century, and he hasn't forgotten us today. He has indeed spoken. So this evening, I want us to consider together this main idea that our God is a God who cares for his people. Our God is a God who cares for his people. And I want to ask three questions of, of this main idea. A who question, a how question, and a what question. So first, who are his people? It's an important question. If, if we realize that God is a God who cares for his people, it's important for us to know who are these special people? Who are his people? Well, in verse 5, we read, we see a contextual note that Herod is king of Judea during this time, and Herod reigned from about 37 B.C. to about 4 B.C. So in this time of Luke chapter 1, Herod likely was coming to the end of his reign over, over Judea. And we also are introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they both come from these priestly lines of descent. In fact, Zechariah himself is a priest who serves in the temple. And notice what we read in verse 6. We read that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous in the sight of God, living blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were faithful. They were faithful to God's moral law that had been revealed to them. But they also were faithful in this system of worship that God had given them during this time of redemptive history. You know, to put it in language that we might relate to, it's, it'd be like saying someone is, is faithful to obey God's law as a, as a norm of gratitude and faithful to Lord's Day corporate worship, where we receive the public means of grace. Now in verse 7, we read that Elizabeth was barren, childless. They were old. Now in the Old Testament, to be barren, to be childless, was not a good sign. Jewish women interpreted this as punishment from God, a sign of God's curse upon their life, the judgment. But because Elizabeth is described as both righteous and barren, this cues us into the fact that something more may be going on with this couple. In fact, first century original hearers who knew their Old Testaments well would have been thinking, hmm, I bet God will use these, this couple in a mighty way. For instance, who else falls within this category of righteous and barren in the Old Testament? Well, Sarah and Isaac, Samuel, or Hannah and Samuel, Manoah and Samson, people who God used mightily to accomplish and further his plan of redemption. For throughout the Old Testament, we see God oftentimes uses barren wombs to accomplish 
his purpose is to advance redemptive history so that he would receive all the glory, so that man could take no credit for what God is doing. It's the same in our lives. When God brings us to a place of weakness, brings us to our lowest point, it's so that he can show up in in a powerful way in our lives, sustaining us, strengthening our faith, that he might receive all the glory and not us. So clearly we see in this narrative that Zechariah and Elizabeth are part of God's people. These are the characters. These are the recipients of whatever care God's going to give his people. But they're not the only ones included in this group of, of the people of God. You'll notice in verse 10 and 21, we read of the people, the nation of Israel, Israelites, the Jews, who were gathering around the temple praying as Zechariah was doing his work in the holy place. So we see the Israelites, Zechariah, Elizabeth, these were, the member, these were members of the covenant community. These were God's people. You may be thinking, well, okay, I, I see that, that the characters of this narrative, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Israel, the, these are the people of God, but what does this have to do with us today? Well, one of the great insights of the Reformed faith, which I just, I treasure, is that we read scripture and see that God has one people, one people, not many people, one people. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it's the same people. This is what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, the universal Catholic church. From Adam to Abraham, the prophet, Zechariah, these are our people. This is our family history. They were members, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were members of the covenant community just before the first century A.D. They had the temple, the sacrifices, the, the promises. We today are members of the covenant community of God. We have the sacraments, the word, the promises. So the God of Zechariah, of Elizabeth, of the Jews, is our God as well. And the God who cares for them is also the God who will care for you and me today. This therefore leads us to our next question. So if we are included in the people of God, well, how does God care for his people? How does God care for his people? We see here that God cares for his people through his word. God cares for his people through his word. And in Luke 1, this word comes through the mouth of the angel Gabriel. And before we get into the content of this word, it's important to set the context of, of this scene. So in verses 8 through 9, we read that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the temple and to give this incense offering. And during this time in Israel, there would be a morning and evening sacrifice. And before the sacrifice would be given in the holy place, one priest would be chosen by Lot to offer this incense offering. Now, there were thousands of priests in Israel at this time. And so to be chosen by Lot to offer this incense offering was a once-in-a-career event. So this would have been a big deal for Zechariah. He was chosen. This was the highlight of his career as, as a priest to give this incense offering. 
And now while Zechariah is, is in the temple, in the holy place, which is the outer place before the most holy place, where the presence of God dwelled directly, we see that an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This angel of the Lord is Gabriel. But notice Zechariah's initial response. Very counterintuitive to how us moderns would probably think, think of angels. Not, it's not a comforting scene, not a warm scene. No, his initial response is fear. Why? Because an angel is in the presence of God. And what is God? Well, God's a holy God, morally perfect. And when the holy comes into the midst of the un- unholy, it strikes fear in the hearts of sinners. We see this throughout the Bible. Think of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is caught up in the very courtroom of God, the very uh, throne room of God. And this almost undoes him. This is the most terrifying thing he's experienced. I think we've lost this in our day. A sense of reverence for the divine. You know, when we gather here for corporate worship, what we're doing this evening, we are, in a very real sense, being called out of this world as citizens of heaven into the very presence of God himself. Hebrews 12 tells us that we, we gather, we are called to the foot of Mount Zion itself, the presence of God. And God meets with us in this moment in a way that's fundamentally different than the way he meets with us throughout the week in personal worship or family worship. And this is why Hebrews tells us that we should be worshiping God with awe and reverence because our God is a holy God. Our God is a consuming fire. And yes, of course, we're worshiping in a school, but this is a sacred moment we are engaging in. So do you treat this time, this time as sacred? You marked with awe and reverence, not, not a, a fear of like you're trembling, you're, fear, you're, you're fearing his judgment, but do you revere him? Yes, he's our father, but he's a holy father. Well, Zechariah is now told in verse 12 not to fear. He's given this word of comfort because what Gabriel's going to say is, is good news. It's good news because his angel's announcement is about this Elijah who was prophesied to come in John the Baptist. He's prophesying about the birth and ministry of John the Baptist. This is Malachi chapter 4 that he's alluding to, coming to fulfillment. And what we see here is that John is the last Old Testament prophet, the last Old Testament prophet before the coming of the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 15, we see that John was not to drink alcohol or strong drink. He was to be consecrated to the Lord. And what we see in the Old Testament is that prophets oftentimes had an aesthetic lifestyle. And this matched that time in redemptive history where they were coming with a word of judgment and repentance to a people who had transgressed the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. We also read that he was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. And prophets of old, like we saw in like Isaiah 6, they had this special anointing of the Spirit. And we see that special anointing happening even in his mother's womb. And this foreshadows what's going to happen in the beginning of Acts with Pentecost, as the Spirit of God will be poured out without, without measure in the hearts of God's people. 
Lastly, uh, verses 15 and 16, we see that John's going to bring about this great reformation. Reformation between familial relationships, fathers and sons, daughters and mothers, but ultimately between their heavenly father. He will bring people back to the Lord himself. In this way, John mirrors the ministry of Elijah of old, as Elijah himself called people to repentance. But John, as I mentioned, is the last Old Testament prophet. He had a special role of preparing the way for Christ, being a forerunner to Christ. Now, boys and girls, when you see clouds in the sky, what do you think of? Well, you think of rain. Clouds means that rain likely is to happen. Or when you're driving home and you see the street that you live on, what do you think of? Well, you think of, I'm almost home. You think of your house. Well, in a similar way, Luke is wanting us to think of in the Old Testament as it prophesies about John. When you think of John, think about Christ. Because John is preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. Well, I'd like us to dwell a few moments on the nature of this word. This word that the angel Gabriel gives to Zechariah in the temple. And first we see that it's a true word. Even in our passage, we see its partial fulfillment. In verse 24, we see that Elizabeth conceives. And a few passages from now, we will see that she will give birth to John. This is a true word. But we also see that it's a word of comfort. It's a word of comfort. In verse 13, we read that this word of Gabriel was an answer to prayer. It was an answer to prayer for the people of Israel. No doubt they were praying for God to continue his work of redemption, to carry forth this great and glorious plan which began in Genesis chapter 3. No doubt they were pleading with God to fulfill his promises. So this comes to answer to prayer for the people of Israel as a, a, as a whole. But also comes to answer to prayer, I'm sure, personally, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. This would have been a, a trial for them, being barren and childless. And yet we see... Elizabeth conceives. In fact, we see God's personal care for Elizabeth. In verse 25, you see Elizabeth saying that God has removed from her this disgrace. In that time period, to be barren was a shameful thing in society. See, God's personal care in in removing this disgrace, this shame from her, and answering their prayer and giving them a child. Therefore, we see in this passage that God cares for his people through his word. Now, in the time of Luke 1, Zechariah, Elizabeth, the people of Israel, it was through the mouth of Gabriel. But for us today, God also cares for us through his word. But now it's through the inscripturated word of God, the Bible. It's not through the mouth of an angel, it's through the book that you are holding in your hands. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. How will people hear to be saved if there, if there are not preachers to be sent to preach the word? Throughout the pastoral epistles, we're called to come back to the reading and preaching of God's word. This is how God cares and comforts his people. In fact, when you look at scripture as a whole, it's striking to see that God has chosen this median to communicate with his people. He's chosen to commune and communicate with his people through speech, 
And for us today, in our time of redemptive history, it's through his written word. That's how God cares and comforts his people. You know, we are approaching the, the holiday season, a time that's oftentimes portrayed as comfort and joy as we gather with family and friends and have good food and fellowship. But for many of us, this can be a time of loneliness and sadness. I think it's important for us to remember that our greatest comfort in this life does not come from these things, these good things, but it comes from the fact that God has spoken to us. He's spoken to you personally through his written word. Brothers and sisters, this is precisely why we need the church. This is precisely why you have gathered here this evening was to hear God speak to you through his word. You've not gathered here to hear progressive politics, conservative politics. You've not gathered here to hear my wisdom or my preferences or my likes and dislikes. You've not gathered here to be entertained or to hear a a motivating self-help talk. You've gathered here to hear God speak to you in his gospel, to speak to you in his law, to comfort you with a comfort that you can't find anywhere else in this world except for here. You may be thinking, well, this prophecy, this word of Gabriel, actually took away Elizabeth's suffering. Right? She conceived, and this trial of being barren was taken away. And you may think, well, God's word doesn't promise me today that my suffering, my trials will be taken away. Does he still care for us? Well, yes, it's true. Elizabeth, as she was a... a particular and important player in God's plan of redemption did have this trial taken away. And yes, it's true that God does not promise to take away our sufferings and trials in this life. But just as the word, the word of Gabriel, was about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's only significance is insofar as he points the finger to Christ, this in a lot of ways is a microcosm of the word itself. All of God's word is either directly or indirectly about Christ. And so when we read God's word, yes, God may, in his mystery of his providence, call us to endure very difficult things in this life. But we know in Christ our greatest suffering has been taken away. God's wrath, everlasting judgment, the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from that suffering. And that is good news. Our greatest needs have been taken care of in the gospel that's promised us in in the word. So even if our our so-called barrenness persists, whether that's literal or whatever other trial or difficulty is in your life, know that you've been delivered from the greatest suffering of all and given the greatest comfort one could receive. So God cares for his people. He cares through his people through his word. This leads us then to ask, well, what response should we have to this word, to this care? What response should we have to God's care for us in this manner? Well, notice in in verse 18, we see Zechariah's response. And Zechariah says to the angel, he says, "By, by what will I know this? For I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. His initial response is to doubt. Come on. You're telling us in our age we're going to have a child? Zechariah was wanting a sign of assurance. And the sign 
that Zachariah receives is probably not what he was expecting. And there's a bit of irony, I think, going on here. In verse 20, we see that Gabriel gives him a sign, but it's a sign that he will be mute. And in the text, we see that this is a, a form of punishment. It's because of his unbelief, God, or Ab- uh, Gabriel gives him the, the sign of, of being unable to speak. But in a sense, it also was his assurance to him. Because I would imagine when he left the temple and tried to speak and no words were coming out, his doubt was probably gone. You probably realize, yeah, this angel is actually speaking truth to me. And when we come to that event in verses 21 through 22, the people were waiting for Zechariah. And Zechariah likely was delayed as he, as he was speaking with Gabriel. And the people would have been in great dis, uh, suspense at this point because to be delayed in the temple was generally not a good sign because the temple is the holy place. And any, one mishap could cost a priest his life because they're dealing with the holiness of God. This is a serious matter. You can almost hear the sigh of relief from the crowd as Zechariah reemerges from the temple and they realize, oh, he's okay. And it's customary for a priest to come, after, come out of the temple and give the, uh, bless the people with the Arianic blessing that we see in number six that we oftentimes conclude our services with. And he tries to bless them. Nothing comes out. And so he has to make a sign of blessing because he is mute at this time. Well, what does this have to do with us? What do we learn from from how we should respond to God's care for us? I think we often can can sympathize with with Zechariah here. We are are doubting creatures. We, too, doubt God's word to us. Scripture is indeed clear, and it was written to give us certainty. We weren't able to spend any time on this, but verses 1 through 4 is telling us this. We see that Luke wasn't just writing a fairy tale. He was actually doing serious history. He had eyewitnesses, and he was trying to compile, and he was compiling, a historical narrative to give us assurance and certainty that Christ is who he said he was. However, we, we're still weak. We're still sinful. We are still doubting creatures. We still ask ourselves, how do I know? Okay, I, I heard the promises of the gospel. How do I know that those are true for me? Brothers and sisters, we too are given signs. Now, Zechariah's sign, again, as he was this player in redemptive history, was in some sense a sign of punishment, a form of punishment, as well as assurance. For us today, God gives us signs that are not punishment, but they're gracious signs to bolster our assurance. And what are these signs? The sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are signs that are attached to the word to further confirm to us what God says to us. It's as if God says, because you still doubt when you hear my word in your ears, I will give you the gospel. I will give you the word in the form of water, in the form of bread and wine, in a form that's tangible to more senses than just your ears. So you can see and smell and touch the goodness of God towards you, which you read about in the word. This is part of the reason why Reformed churches 
have a conviction of celebrating the Lord's Supper frequently. I mean, that can look like a number of ways. It can look monthly, weekly, bi-weekly. But why wouldn't we want this sign attached to the preaching of God's word? We see that we can hear God's word, we can hear it preached to us, but still doubt. How do I know that this is true for me? And when we come to the table, brothers and sisters, we are assured, as our catechism so eloquently says, that he himself feeds and nourishes our soul unto everlasting life, as certainly as I taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, which are given to me as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. Well, the next time you wonder, does God hear my prayers? Does he see what's going on in my life? Where is he? Know that God does indeed care for you. He cares for you because he has spoken. Just like he spoke to Zechariah of old, he speaks to us today, each week, through his word and sacraments, to remind us of his goodness that's been displayed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would increase our trust in you. May we know in a new and fresh way that you care for us in Christ. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.